Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. We are thick into our series on suicide prevention, and today we're talking about how we cope when we haven't been able to prevent a suicide. What we do when our workplace is impacted by the loss of a coworker who has died by suicide. As we've identified in this series so far, those working in first response and frontline work are at a higher risk of suicide than the average population. And as such, it also means that we're at higher risk of grieving the loss of a coworker to suicide. I know that for many of you, it's hard to not be stumbling on yet another anniversary of the death of someone you've worked with, that it can become numbing to cope with the sheer volume of compound losses. For others, the frequency may not be quite so high, and when coworker suicides happen, you may feel shocked and uncertain about how to hold it. We're also left with this expectation to keep going to show up and put in your shift set, to carry on carrying on and act as if it's business as usual. In part, because to some extent it is. You are an essential service who is at a higher risk for suicide. And there is expectation that you figure out how to manage the risks of the job, including the loss of people you've been connected to. Some workplaces will acknowledge the loss, maybe even engage in some meaningful gestures of care to the loved ones of the deceased. But for those coming back to work on the front lines, it is often difficult to really look at what's happened, to really engage in grief around a loss, because it's confronting. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge the risks within the work and terrifying to identify our own risk in it too. And we know we have to keep showing up. So we'll tend to avoid, ignore, numb, or stuff it in order to have the capacity to continue in the day-to-day expectations of the work and the other expectations in our personal lives. I also know that in my clinical work, when we talk about topics like this, I hear from a lot of people that they don't actually know how to grieve. Like practically, what does it mean to not avoid, ignore, numb, or stuff the feelings that come up when we lose someone? What does it look like to do grief? And is there a way to do it that doesn't sink us? Because we can't afford to be sunk. 
These are great questions, and what I hope we can tackle in today's episode is exactly this. With that, I also want to voice that while we may be able to avoid, ignore, numb, or stuff our grief-related feelings around a given loss, or maybe even a series of losses, this will eventually sink you in its own right. Avoiding isn't actually avoiding it. It's not steering you away from the iceberg right ahead. It's more like covering your eyes while careening directly toward it. If you don't deal with grief and emotions, it will eventually deal with you. That's a promise. And I have a ton of clients who would echo that this is 100% true. Let's start by talking about some of the feelings that tend to show up when navigating a coworker's death by suicide. Then we'll address grief and ways to manage. Common emotions that emerge when someone in our sphere dies by suicide include guilt. We can feel like we should have seen it coming, should have known somehow, should have done more, connected more. We can carry a sense of guilt for not knowing the person was struggling or for not taking indications of risk more seriously or for taking actions to help at these not being successful in preventing suicide. Anger. Often being a witness to the aftermath of a suicide leaves us feeling angry with the person who committed suicide. Anger for the impact this leaves behind for those left to continue living and working out how to carry forward with this significant event now a part of their story. We can also experience anger towards situations, people, and systems that we perceive as being participants in the factors leading to suicide. Sadness. When a person matters to us and we lose them, sadness is an appropriate emotional symbol of the mattering they held within you. Sadness can feel uncomfortable for many. We're still working to dispel long-held cultural myths about sadness equating with weakness. But sadness is really about missing and grieving something or someone that mattered to us. It's an echo of their mattering. And we shouldn't want to trade that because ultimately we are creatures of connection and having people matter to us and mattering to others is the most fundamental aspect of human living. A jumble of emotion. There's an episode of a cartoon called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. It's a spinoff of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and I highly recommend it. In one of the episodes, he sings a little song about how you can feel two feelings at the same time. Most of my clients have heard this little jingle because it's valuable for us to know and understand. Humans rarely feel a single emotion. More often than not, we feel not only one or two emotions, but rather a host of emotions simultaneously. Sometimes even competing or mutually exclusive seeming emotions. We're complex and our emotions reflect our innate complexity. Sometimes we can be feeling guilt, anger, and sadness all at once. We can remember good times and feel gratitude for those moments and memories while also feeling angry that we've been robbed of more time with a person we care about. The jumble of emotions can lead into expressions of our emotions that can feel hard to name or make sense of. Frustration, irritability, mood swings, difficulty making sense of things, confusion, difficulty sleeping, and so on. We can struggle to know how to make sense of this thing that has happened. 
often feeling like we're left with so many questions unanswered. Numbness or action. For those who have worked within first response or frontline work where crisis response is part of your moment-to-moment work every single day of your career, you may also find that you jump over emotions and move directly into numbness, the tuning out of feelings to continue on functioning, or that you move directly into action mode where you try to do and solve and fix and manage rather than be and feel. And the last one on my list of feelings that are common experiences is disenfranchised grief. One of the strange emotions that can emerge as a coworker to someone who has died by suicide is feeling not entitled to having an emotional response. After all, you aren't their spouse or child or family member or a close friend. You work together. That's it, right? We can feel like our feelings need to not matter. Or that the feelings we feel are silly or disproportionate. Meanwhile, in first response and frontline work, coworkers often work very closely with one another. Shifts are often 8 to 12 plus hours, spending more time together during the waking hours of the day than that person likely will with their spouse, children, or other close people in their personal lives. Many first response and frontline work organizations are built on concepts like brotherhood or family. There's mutual respect, protection, and looking out for one another. These are professions where we rely on one another to stay safe and solve problems that can be life and death. You are riding out the highs and lows of that together, and it builds an allegiance and bond that runs deep and has impact, much like it might for those in the person's personal sphere. It's a lot, isn't it? These are significant emotions we're talking about. I often say that we can't deal with a problem if we don't know what the problem is. We talked a couple of weeks ago about clarity being a vital requisite skill for navigating this series, as well as a valuable skill when it comes to navigating a workplace suicide. When we're facing something like this type of loss, we need to get clear about what emotions are common and use this to help us work to better understand how we're doing. Being able to identify and label our emotions is extremely helpful in being able to make use of them meaningfully, and it's also important to being able to seek out effective support. These plentiful and big feelings tend to be why we try hard to avoid and steer clear of really feeling them. It seems too big, too much, and we have to keep on functioning somehow. The thing about grief is that it's often compared to skidding on ice. When you slam on the brakes and steer to fight the skid, it tends to get a whole lot worse. But when you let go of the gas and steer into the skid, you tend to course correct a heck of a lot quicker with less likelihood of total catastrophe. When we try to do all we can to avoid grief, we make it worse and it becomes a bigger problem to get ourselves out of on the other side. Meanwhile, if we can try to let go of controlling it a bit and allow ourselves to move with the direction it's steering us, we tend to be able to come out of it less damaged. Grief can feel nebulous because it doesn't really have a strong sense of timeline. It's hard to say when we're done grieving. Some, myself included, would say that likely we never really are done. Grief ebbs and flows. Days will feel easier and then harder again. 
Triggers will happen that prompt us back to remembering and grieving a new piece connected to the loss of someone who's mattered to us. The thing about grief is that it's an emotional symbol of our living. If we're really living, we're really doing this life thing where we're connecting, feeling meaning in connection with others, and caring in ways that build the beautiful aspects of life, then grief is not optional. It's part and parcel. We grieve because we risked to care. We grieve because we gave a crap. And while uncomfortable, it reminds us that we are doing a life that hurts at times because we risked bits of our hearts. So let's talk about how we grieve and how we try to do this while continuing to function in a world that needs us to stay afloat. First things first, know what grief looks like. It is not a neat and tidy step-by-step process, despite how some present Kubler-Ross's stages of grief model all these decades later. Yes, Kubler-Ross identified five stages of grief. We probably all know them thanks to fantastical versions of this on TV. They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I've taught these in groups a number of times, and when I do, I always write them on the board in a random word jumble mess. Different sizes, the order all over the place, the words recurring a number of times smattered across the whiteboard. I do this because that's more akin to what grief looks like. A bit of a random mess. No specific order, sometimes jumping back and forth and back and forth between a couple of these pieces a number of times, and no clear path from beginning to end. Grief is personal. It's our own process, and it will look a little different, even from one experience of grieving to another. Okay, I know that may not have been super encouraging to hear that grief is a mess. Sorry, my job is to be honest with you, not to make it all feel pretty. But here's the good news to know about grief. Grief is natural and it will move and it won't kill you. We often wanna control grief. For reasons outlined already, we know it's uncomfortable and we don't tend to love discomfort. So we try to rush through it, to hurry up and get to the other side. Meanwhile, it's much like trying to rush any other natural process. If we're successful in rushing it, It's not as good as if we had let it come naturally. And it will naturally get there on its own if we give it time. Giving grief time can be hard. We can have difficulty trusting that the grief won't feel overwhelmingly heavy for such a period of time that we will inevitably fold under the weight of it. Meanwhile, not giving it time is what tends to load us up for the weight of cumulative losses that will at some point come calling for our attention. And I promise that doesn't tend to look pretty. My husband often says this thing to my kids when they're having a hard time falling asleep. He says, you have to give sleep a chance. What he means is that they have to stop chatting and reading and singing to themselves and looking all around the room and squirming in their beds. They have to breathe deep with their eyes closed and give sleep a chance to come. It's similar in grief. We have to give grief a chance. It doesn't have to be all the time, but we have to open some time for it to come and to have some space. 
We can't move through grief if we don't give it a chance to have space to move through. Okay, so we know what grief looks like, why we need to engage it, and that we need to give it space and time. So now as we grieve, what do we need to focus on? First, focus on support. Where you can, try to identify your own needs and engage to meet these. Whether that means doing small things for yourself or asking safe people in your life to offer support to you. It's healthy to seek out comfort, nurturance, care, and connection. It's also okay to have times of wanting quiet and distance. Just be conscientious of engaging this intentionally and ensure that you have times of coming back to connection. Don't isolate yourself out. Second, focus on what matters. Losses are reminders of our vulnerability. Anchor back to the things that matter most to you what you value, and how you prioritize these pieces in your life. Find ways to show value to those people in your life you care about and ways to feel valued yourself. Third, consider what needs to change. Losses often put things in perspective for us, sometimes in a jarring and stark kind of way, but perspective nonetheless. These moments can be a prompt to consider whether we're doing our own lives in a way that feels meaningful, and it can be valuable to take pause and consider ways you may want to adjust your own choices and trajectory to be protective of your values and wishes. Fourth, cultivate rituals of remembering. As you move through grief, think about how you want to remember and honor the person who has died. Finding or crafting rituals for grieving can be really meaningful. For some, it may mean getting a cupcake and lighting a candle for the person's birthday each year, taking time to remember the person and the meaning they had in your life. It may mean choosing a day once a year to remember the many losses of coworkers, perhaps a day you take off to go for a hike in nature, or a day where you run a fundraising run for PTSD or mental health or a day where you talk with others you know about those who have been lost and share memories together. It can be big or small. It doesn't matter. It just has to be yours. I'll post some additional ideas around rituals for remembering and honoring in the show notes. So if you're feeling stumped by this one, go check that out by Googling Behind the Line Lindsay and jump to the show notes for today's episode, Season 2, Episode 3. Last but not least, seek direction. Sometimes grief can get complicated, and sometimes it's complicated by the fact that we haven't learned to do it very well and are trying to sort it out and do it differently. You don't have to go it alone. The specialized grief and loss counselors I know, and I happen to know a few of them, are some of the most incredible humans I work with. And if grief is something you feel unequipped to face and steer into, I would really recommend seeking out someone who has specialization in supporting the grief process. They can offer clarity, direction, and support as you figure out what it looks like to journey forward. Okay, I want to address one more thing before we end today, and that's the expectation in a lot of workplaces to act as if it's business as usual after the loss of one of our own from suicide. I have seen many organizations lift up fallen heroes who have died in the line of duty 
or have recognized the contributions of a member who dies after a hard-fought battle with a terminal illness, and then sweep it under the rug when death comes from suicide. Workplace cultures can have a significant role in allowing either healthful or harmful environments for making sense of this kind of event and the accompanying grief. We talked a lot about workplace cultures and cultivating culture shifts during our Daring Leadership series back in the spring. If you haven't given those a listen, go check out season one, episodes 19 to 27. We can contribute to making our workplaces safer spaces to be human and have hearts and be connected in working through the hard things we face, both in the work and as a result of the work. We're going to wrap up for today, and next week we're coming back to finish our series on suicide prevention by talking about feeling suicidal and what to do when it's you that's feeling stuck in a dark hole with no way out. We'll talk about what to look for, how to catch ourselves on the slippery slope earlier and work to intervene, and how to find support even when we feel like we're in too deep. I hope you'll come back and join me next week and that you'll encourage others you work with to join in too. Do check out our show notes for this series. Each week I'll be posting additional resources, recommended books, and other bits and pieces. As always, know that you can also reach out and connect with me on social media at Lindsay A. Foss on Facebook and Instagram, or by emailing me at support at thrive-life.ca. I will always work to connect and offer support and connection to other resources wherever I can. I always love hearing from you and value those who reach out to share their stories. I know this series may bring up some things for some listeners and that there may be feedback you'd like to share. Please know that I welcome your thoughts and feedback as we navigate this series together. Until next time, stay safe.